Welcome to the weekly message from Upper Room Community Church in Vaughan. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and provide practical ways to strengthen your relationships. For more information, visit us at upperroom.ca. Welcome, and I have the privilege of reading from God's Word this morning. And our passage today comes from Philippians chapter 2. So let's read. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of God. Morning. Morning. How y'all doing? Good, good. Happy Mother's Day. Did anyone show up and like, dang, it's Mother's Day. I forgot. Anyone, anyone in that category? Yeah, okay, okay. Yep, you can go shopping after. We're close to a lot of stores. Uh, great to be with you. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet yet, my name is Mark, and uh, we are in a series here. In fact, a two-church series, basically my church connection, your church upper room. We're doing this series together, and uh, it's a series called Finally Free, Giving and Receiving True Forgiveness. And so uh, it's been a really exciting journey. It's been a really hard journey. You know, people talk to me. In, front, uh, in fact, a friend of, friend of mine who uh, doesn't go to our church, he's at another church, but he's been listening online. He just called me. He's like, this series is kicking my butt. And I'm like, dude. Dude, if that's what you got from 35 minutes, imagine me and VJ who are just studying this stuff for hours. We're getting destroyed, okay? But it's good. It's awesome. I, I'm just hearing so many stories, and I have my own stories of how, you know, God is just speaking to me, transforming uh, lives and relationships. So we're just so, so, so excited, and today we have the opportunity uh, of doing that some more. So as we get in, we are in part number... Good. Hey, hey, those... Hey, why not? Uh, So part number five, and I want to tell you a little bit of a story uh, just to help you understand this idea a little bit more. Uh, A few years ago, in fact, 10 years ago, exactly this year, I began dating this beautiful woman who in fact uh, became my wife, uh, which is, so there's a happy ending to the story. And so anyways, we were in high school at the time and uh, we were on a date and this was a very significant date in our relationship. It was the first year of our relationship and uh, we're on this beach and we're just chatting and it's really great. And then I dropped, you ready for this? I dropped the (laughs) L-bomb. Yeah, some of you are like, oh no, you didn't in the first, yeah, I did. I dropped the L-bomb. I just, I said, you know, I think I love you. 
right? It was just, is this moment, you know, some of you are terrified, some of you, you're married, you still haven't dropped the album yet because you're just so scared. What if they don't say it back, right? This could be awkward, but, you know, I just went for it because I'm like, this is what I feel. I just want her to know how much I love her. And so we look back, it's like, that's the first time you told me you love me at the beach. You know, we went swimming in Lake Ontario and we lived to tell about it. Like, it was just awesome, right? Awesome, awesome, awesome. So then, you know, we got hungry, but we were in high school, so we couldn't afford to eat because if you ever go to a restaurant on an island, they can charge whatever they want because you're on an island, right? So we actually forfeited food, which was, you know, not a good thing for someone with a high metabolism because then I start to get cold and then I have to ask my girlfriend to borrow her sweater, right? Like, it's not pretty. But, you know, we eventually were just like, you know, we got we to gotta head home. We got to get on the ferry. We got to get back onto the subway. We got like a long way home and then we can eat some food from our parents' fridge, right? Like, that's what we could do. So we, we decided to start this trek and it had to start with going to the bathroom and changing out of our bathing suits. So I'm in the bathroom and I'm changing out of my bathing suit. And as I'm digging through my backpack... I find a granola bar. So, I mean, come on, Casanova over here, thinking that the bathroom is connected and she can definitely hear me if I scream loud enough, starts to scream, my love, my love, my love, I have found food for thee. <laughs> I wish, it's been 10 years. I wish that's what I did. It's not what I did, this is what I did. I quickly got on the toilet and I unwrapped so quietly, this granola bar, and I ate the entire thing. And I disposed of the wrapper, and I didn't tell her about it for years to come. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? That somehow, moments before, I was professing my love. I would do anything. I just dropped the album. Love you, woman. I just, you're just so great. And moments later, it's like I just served myself. I didn't sacrifice at all. You ever realize that we have it on, on the screen that we all seem to have a gravitational pull towards ourselves instead of others? You ever notice that there's just this natural inclination inside you and inside me that seems to favor ourselves over others? It's not something we got with our undergrad degree. It's actually been there since the time we were born. Some of you have young kids or some of you know people with young kids and you know they cry a lot. And you know, from the moment they were born, they were crying not because you lack sleep, not because you haven't eaten, not because you don't have time to take a shower. They're crying because they want something. Because all of us have this gravitational pull towards ourselves. You get older, it's still there. My son turned one this weekend, and he's, he's now, he's crawling around, and my wife was telling me this story. He's like on the other side of the room at the library playing, you know, just ignoring everyone just in his own little world. And all of a sudden, this little girl crawls into my wife's lap, and he sees this from across the room, drops his toy, crawls over, and says, isn't she warm and cuddly? I hope you enjoy her. That's not what he said. He, said, he just got in between the baby and my wife and pushed her out. Because the thing is, you don't have to teach babies how to be selfish. You have to teach them how to share because all of us have a gravitational pull towards ourselves instead of others. We get older. It doesn't go away. We become teenagers. We eat the whole granola bar and don't tell them. You become adults. I mean, you see this in every facet of life. I mean, weddings. Weddings are all about celebration and sacrifice. It's just this amazing thing. You ever been at a wedding and you're at that table? You know the table where you're like, I don't know anyone at the table. We call that the table of leftovers. It's just like they didn't know where to put you. So they just, I get at that table a lot. Maybe I'm an anomaly, but I'm always there. And so it's always like, hey, what's your name? What do you do? Hey, what do you, right? You kind of go around. It's like, oh, you're a plumber. I have a leak, right? It's like the first thing you think about is how can you serve me? Because all of us have this gravitational pull to serve ourselves instead of others. The scriptures will call it a sinful nature. You can call it a flaw, whatever you'd like, but the reality is it's there. It's been there since the beginning and it goes with us everywhere. And when we've been dealing with this idea of conflict and forgiveness and relational tension, it's not an exception. That over and over and over again, we realize that we have a gravitational pull towards ourselves. That we say things like we're going to make them pay, we got to win the argument, 
We say things like, well, it's not my responsibility. The ball is in their court. It's all about a gravitational pull towards ourselves. You know, it's their turn to respond. I did my part. I don't need them. They need to say sorry to me. They owe me one. They need to admit that they were wrong. They need to realize how badly they need me. That the reality is the way that we respond to conflict and tension is all about this gravitational pull towards ourselves. The bottom line is that the win in conflict, the win in tension is self-preservation. Isn't that true? That we look out for ourselves because, I mean, tons of people taught us this when we were growing up. Nobody's going to look out for you. you got to look out for yourself. And so in conflict, we put our fists up and we protect and we protect and we protect because we're looking out for number one. Because the reality is everybody's looking out for number one. And if you don't look out for number one, nobody's going to look out for number one. The interesting thing is the reason I think why this series has been so hard for you and for me to swallow so many times is because it goes against this gravitational pull that we have to serve ourselves. That so many times, I mean, you're sitting here and you're like, okay, Jesus said it, but I don't know. I don't know if I agree. I don't feel like you're in small group and it's like your home group and you're, you're discussing this stuff and it's like, yeah, but I don't feel like that's the right thing. I don't know if I got it in me. It's this gravitational pull towards ourselves instead of others and it's kind of bumping up against what the scriptures have to say. Maybe a good way to summarize it is that when it comes to conflict and forgiveness, if the idea bumps up against our values and opinions, we value our own opinion over God's. That when it comes to conflict and forgiveness, if it bumps up against our own values and opinions, we value our opinion over God's. I found this awesome quote by a man named Tim Keller. I want to share it with you. The problem is, is I can't sit still, so I don't read and sit. I read and walk, and then Siri takes my notes from me. Siri butchered the quote, and then I tried to piece it back together, but I just, I don't want to get sued for plagiarism, so I'm just telling you that up front. But it's originally a Tim Keller quote, and then me and Siri got like an assist on this, okay? But genius quote. <laughs> The new human community, remember VJ talked last week about we're part of a new family, this new community. The new human community that the Bible requires, I love this, cuts across all cultures and temperaments. Put another way, it doesn't fit any culture but challenges them all at some point. It challenges them all at some point. The truth is that when you engage scriptures, that when you engage God, yes, we're made in his image, but we are different. That there are things that he's going to believe. There are ways in which we are called to live that are not going to resonate with us, that we are not going to be excited about. But the reality is, is in those moments, we don't hit the unfollow button. We don't say, well, I don't agree and I don't feel. But in those moments, we need to have a posture of, this is a new family. And this is not what I'm used to. And this is not what my gravitational pull would like. But I need to learn about this new family. And so we come kind of with this open-handed posture of, teach me your ways, Lord because your ways are not our ways, that we are different. Instead of, I don't know, I don't feel, I don't like, I don't agree. Well, I want to leave that door, and I want you to just come today just saying, what is this new family like? And as we have that posture, then we can kind of move forward into what comes next. Because last week, G uh, Jesus, VJ, okay, VJ, wasn't it brilliant the last week? Didn't, wasn't it awesome? He started talking about this idea of, of reconciliation, and then he had those diagrams. Some of you listened on the audio cast, and you're like, what is he talking about? There's circles somewhere on a screen. You need to just watch the video, because it was so helpful. I mean, in our home group, we were like drawing out the circles. and like, what about this? Like, no, no, I think it's this. And he just masterfully explained the, the relationship between forgiveness, trust, and reconciliation. If you missed it, you have to, you have to, you have to pick up that message next week. It will be so helpful. It will answer so many of the practical questions that you have been asking. But in that, he explained that, that we have this new family dynamic, that we are part of a new family that actually values reconciliation, not just moving on and I don't need them in my life, and but we're actually part of a new family, this Christian community that values reconciliation. 
Now, when VJ shared that message at my church, we had Q&A after. And so someone was just like, yeah, but what do you do when you want reconciliation and the other person doesn't want it? And VJ just so beautifully said, he's like, listen, it's like a bridge. You can only build half. If they're not willing to come the other half, then that's okay. But the scriptures are clear. You can only live at peace with someone if they're also willing to live at peace with you. Okay, so that's just, that's the, the, the reality of what we're in with our families, with our friends, at school, at work, whatever it is, okay? Now today what we're going to do is we're going to dig a little bit deeper into this idea of reconciliation, but what we're going to discover is that there's actually this new family that we're a part of where everyone is actually supposed to believe in reconciliation. Put another way, everyone is supposed to be a bridge builder towards healthy relationships, now that's the fantastic news, right? It's like, oh, finally, someone else who wants peace, who wants to work on this, who doesn't just ignore it or throw it under the rug or say, you know, just look straight ahead and don't mention any of the flaws and everything will be all right. Or like, finally, someone who actually agrees with this. But isn't it true? Isn't it true? Isn't it true? That your experience of church and my experience of church says that the good news is also the terrible news because we've all been part of church communities where we've seen relationships go bad, where we've seen tension and we've seen conflict and we've seen fights break out and they've gotten ugly. Isn't it true that sometimes maybe it's even worse? Because at the end of the day, you're thinking, and then they did this, and then they did this, and then they did this, and they call themselves a Christian. You ever had that? I mean, maybe that's the reason that you're here today. Because maybe you're part of another church before, and you know, things went bad, and you're just like, I just, I just can't be there anymore. Maybe it's the reason you're listening online, because you don't want to be here today. You don't want to face that person. You don't want to see them eyeball to eyeball. And so you're just listening online. You're like, I want to be part of the community, but I just can't bear to be there. Maybe you're here today. You're not a church person. You're not a Christian. And maybe the reason is because you saw church conflict go bad, or you've heard about church conflict, and you're just like, they're supposed to be loving, but I'm not sure. And so there's this tension because it's fantastic news that we are part of a community that's supposed to believe in reconciliation, but we're also part of a community that sometimes can be so incredibly hurtful and painful to be a part of. So how do we move forward? How do we get through this? What do we do? And so what I want to tell you today is simply this, that maybe the best news and maybe one of the most beautiful things about Christian community doesn't come when we avoid conflict, when we can keep the peaceful waters going all the time, but maybe one of the most beautiful things about Christian community actually comes through conflict, through the tensions. Because in my experience, going to church for almost three decades now and being a pastor for, for years and years, I've discovered that it's not if, but when we have conflict. That the reality is if you haven't had it yet, you probably will. But most of us already have a story of what conflict can look like in the church. And what I want to tell you today is one of the most beautiful things about our faith actually may come not when we avoid conflict, but through conflict. So if you would, would you turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 23. We're going to spend a little bit of time there, and then we're going to turn to another passage, okay? So Matthew, chapter 5, verse 23, and we're going to start reading in just a second. Okay. So Jesus is teaching, one of the, uh, probably the most famous uh, time of teaching that he had in his life. It's many referred to it as the Sermon on the Mount, okay? So Jesus is teaching lots of different things, and then he says this. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, okay, uh, public worship, corporate worship, this is what we're doing right now. We come together, we sing together, we listen to God's word. This is a way of showing God he is worth it, that is worship, right? We are ascribing value and worth to him. All throughout history, people have worshiped God. They've done it in different ways. They've done it by celebrating, by enjoying and delighting the things he's created, by singing songs, by bringing gifts and offerings, like there's sacrifices. There's tons of different ways. And so in this time, people would bring gifts and, and sacrifices uh, to the altar. And so Jesus is saying, listen, listen, if you're offering your gift at the altar, you're coming to worship God. 
and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, okay? So you're coming up, you have your gift, and then you're just like, oh, you know, this person and I, we're not, we're not at peace. We are not well. We are not reconciled. He says this, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Okay, now I want you to kind of try and get into this passage a little bit and try to understand what's happening. Jesus is saying, listen, listen, you're in this thing, there's, there's tons of people, countless people all around you, and you have your gift, and you're going up, and it's just like, oh man, you just kind of put it there, just like, can you, can you save my spot, right? Like, I'll be back in a little bit, and you just kind of walk out. I mean, can you imagine how strange it would be? People come, like, someone lose their gift, like, do we put this in the lost and found, or do I offer it as if it's mine? Like, what would you do? It would be kind of strange, right? Like, it'd kind of be like me, you know, if I'm up here, and I'm, like, in a three-point sermon, because, you know, the best ones are three points, mine are never three points, but, like, I'm up here, and it's, like, point number two, and then point number, hang on a second, I just kind of, like, leave, I'm just, like, just walk out the room, and just, like, like, Tony, you know, we just, I didn't like the way you were looking at me earlier, and it's just, it's been bothering me, and I just, I know we're not well. Like, can you just imagine? And then all you people who are just the note takers, you're like, what's point three? Come on, you cannot stop there. The theater's going to have the next movie. You can't just stop there, right? It's like, what is it? It's like, I just, I just deal with the situation. Just relax. I mean, imagine, imagine Kurt Lagin, you know, bless the Lord, just singing his heart out. All of a sudden, he's just like, hang on a second, just puts the guitar down, walks away from the microphone, walks away from the microphone. I mean, there's a reason he has the microphone. His voice is nice. And then we're just hearing our voices. I mean, it'd be awful. He's just like, I just, I don't know how long it's going to be. I just got to go deal with the situation. Imagine Pam on the slides. I mean, come on. I mean, she misses a slide for like two seconds. Everyone's like, did Jesus come back? Did the rapture happen? Right? Like, you're tripping out for two seconds. Imagine if she's just like, I got to deal with the situation here. I'm just going to walk out of the room. I got to go call my friend. And they're in the other country. The time zones are messed up. Like, it's going to be a while. Like, part of you is like, Jesus, Jesus, can't you just finish the worship and then go deal with the situation? Like, why is this so important? Because Jesus is trying to hammer home a very important principle, and it's this. Reconciliation is worship. Reconciliation is worship. See, isn't it true that what pleases people the most is that we care for someone's children? I mean, parents, isn't it true when you feel the most love, it's when someone loves your children? What pleases God the most is when we love his children. So often, we're in church, and it's like, God, we love you, and you're so great, and I'd do anything for you. You know, we're singing all these words, and I wonder if God's just kind of thinking like, you say all these things and you're not willing to love. And you're not willing to go and be reconciled. You see, so often we rate worship in a way I don't think God does. You know, we come home and like, oh, worship was so great. And oh, could you feel the presence of God? And I just feel like as a church, we're growing in worship. It's like, no, 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 no. You think worship was great because the band rehearsed this week, right? You think worship was great because Kurt Legeen is just so dreamy. He's also so married, okay? But like the reality is like we have all these standards, we have all these thoughts. It's like, oh, worship's so great and it was so awesome. It's like, really, I wonder if God's like, yeah, the music sounds great and they're saying all these things, but it's lip service because I saw the way they're treating everybody. That they're saying they love me, they're saying they'd sacrifice their life for me, but they're not willing to do the hard work. They're not willing to love my children. Jesus is making such a powerful, powerful point. He's like, reconciliation is worship. When you do the hard work of calling someone up when there is not peace with you, and you say, hey, we got to work through this because Jesus calls us to be reconciled. That's worship. That's saying, God, you are worth me being uncomfortable. You are worth the hard conversation I need to have because reconciliation is worship. So today what I want to do is I want to look at that passage that Malcolm read. 
because it's a beautiful picture of, of the practical how-to of reconciliation. Because we can all say, okay, reconciliation is worship, but then what does that look like? And so we're going to turn to the book of Philippians, if you would. Book of Philippians, chapter 2. And we're going to unpack a letter that a man named Paul, Paul the Apostle Paul, wrote this letter to a church that was facing some serious conflict. They're facing external conflict. There was, you know, people outside the church who were, I mean, maybe you've had this experience, someone who's not a Christian, kind of like, you go to church? Like, they make fun of you. Back then, it's like, you go to church and they beat you up. It was way worse for them, okay? Not only that, it's like they're facing external conflict, and then they're also facing internal conflict. We see this in the letter, okay? There's tension between the church people. Okay, now the interesting thing is we probably could have picked any New Testament letter because almost every single one of them deals with conflict, okay? Because like I said, it's not if, but when. It's been happening for thousands of years, and that's okay because sometimes the most beautiful things comes not when we avoid conflict, but through conflict. So would you uh, join me as we look at this, this passage? We're gonna start Philippians chapter two, verse three. Paul's first just gonna say, hey, here's what I want you to do. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. So basically he's saying, listen, I know how you are. You have a gravitational pull towards yourself. You're selfish. Let's just be honest. We're all selfish, okay? He's like, but don't be selfish. It's like, easier said than done, Paul. But Paul's like, I, I just want you to know, stop being selfish, okay? Then he's, he says it again, kind of a different way. He's repeating it. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In case you miss me telling you not to be selfish, then count others more significant than yourself. Another way of saying don't be selfish. He's like, in case you missed it, he just really wants to hit this home. Like, I'm not talking about the way you used to do things. This is something totally brand new. He hits it home again. He says, let each of you not look only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Don't be selfish. He's saying the same thing over and over and over again. Now, can I just highlight one thing? Because sometimes we miss this, okay? He says, this is let not each of you not look only to his own interests. Now, sometimes people say, you know what, as followers of Jesus, we just need to sacrifice everything. We can't look out. We can't be selfish. can't look out for your own needs. You have to just care for other people's needs. Can I just say that that's not biblical? That the Bible is very clear that we actually need to care for ourselves as well. That you actually maybe can't even care for other people unless you've cared for yourself first. The scriptures aren't saying forget about any needs that you have and simply focus on others. It's saying, listen, a win is now defined not as looking at your own needs, but also to the interests of others. You know how we know Jesus believed this? Because when people came and they were blind or they couldn't walk or they were hungry and they asked to be healed, Jesus didn't say, why are you so selfish? Do you know how many people are blind in this world and you're asking for sight? No, Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, absolutely. You see, because he was okay with people having needs. He's just saying, I just don't want that to be the, your entire gravitational pull. I want you to look out not just for your own needs, but I'm redefining a win as looking out for the needs of others as well, Okay. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to, as we continue to go, I'm going to give you three very practical ideas of how we move forward in reconciliation and not looking to our own interests, but the interests of others. Three points for all the people who love three-point sermons today. We're going to do it as long as I don't find any conflict with anybody in the room. All right. So Paul continues, verse five, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's like, listen, I don't want you to have your mind. You're part of a new family. And in fact, Jesus's mind, his spirit is in you. And so I want you to start living in this way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he begins to explain Jesus. He's like, I don't want you to look at who you were. I want you to look at who you are and you're in his family. So let me just point to Jesus. And I love, I love, I love this image that he gives. He says, who, though he was in the form of God, we believe Jesus was God in the flesh did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus never leveraged his own strength and power to serve himself. The exact opposite of what we would do. I mean, come on, let's be honest, right? If you had a Bruce Almighty moment, if you could be God in a bod for a day, I mean, come on, you'd leverage it just a little bit, right? Imagine just getting to the office, walk by the water cooler, 
wine. I mean, come on. That'd just be awesome, right? Imagine, like, not packing a lunch, not taking vitamins, not exercising. It's like, what could happen? I'm God in a body, right? Like, there's part of you, there's part of me that's like, if I could be God for a day, I'd do this and I'd do this. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't be, you know, we'd probably be like, yeah, you know, I'd help some people who are poor. The reality is, is we're thinking about how could we serve ourselves. And Paul is saying, listen, listen. Jesus came. He was God in the flesh, God incarnate, God in a body, and he didn't leverage it for himself. He leveraged it for others. Then he continues. But he emptied himself. Verse 7, he emptied himself. The literal translation, he left his God appearance behind. Okay? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Here's what we believe as followers of Jesus. That while we were still sinners, he came down. We weren't asking, oh, God, please come and save us, and oh, we love you so much. It says, while we were still sinners, while we were still ignoring God completely, Jesus comes down, takes on flesh, and comes and lives among us. Jesus makes the first move. Point one, Jesus makes the first move. You see, for us, we don't make the first move, right? We say things like, I'm not coming until they smarten up. I'm not calling until they get it together, till they st- stop screwing up, or I texted last week, or I called three times. The ball is in their court. I mean, imagine if Jesus had done that, right? Like, well, I don't think they really want me to come down from heaven. I don't think I'm going to go yet. I'm waiting until they smarten up. I'm waiting until they get their stuff together. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus made the first move. He took the ball and he put it in his court, even though it wasn't in his court. He made the first move. Jesus made the first move. We follow Jesus because followers of Jesus follow Jesus, which means we are called as reconcilers to make the first move. All throughout scripture, you find this principle. You cannot get away from it. There's no place where you say, you just, you just wait. You just wait till they call you because let's be honest, they screwed up more than you did, right? No, Jesus made the first move. We're called to make the first move as well. As one author said, if the relationship has cooled off in any way, the ball is in your court as a follower of Jesus. The relationship is cooled off in any way. The ball is in your court. He made the first move. We make the first move, okay? Let me give you a few fra- practical sub-bullet points on point number one because I don't want it to be an eight-point sermon. That wouldn't be a win. So I'll just give you a few bullet points under there, okay? Number one, j- this is just practical experience, not because I'm an expert in conflict, but because as a pastor, I see it a lot, okay? Often, both parties believe the ball is in the other person's court. Often, both people believe the ball is in the other person's court. Jesus followers, we make the first move. Number two, you know when the relationship is cooled off. You're intuitive beings. You get a sense, right? Like, ah, I don't know, I felt something. I'm not sure if we're good or, you know, the way they said it or that text or that, you know, I just, I feel like we are unwell. We know far before we make the first move that something is going wrong, that something's unwell. Well, they haven't told me yet, so I can't be sure. Listen, listen, listen. This is the, the thing. I love this. I got this from a friend of mine. He just, he was a master at this. He just always asked. He just called me like, hey, man, I, I got this. I just wasn't sure how to read it, so I just check in. Are we good? We're like, yeah, man, we're good. I just thought it was just so fascinating that he would just always make the first move. He'd just always be like, I just want to make sure we're good. Like, yeah, yeah, no, or, oh, yeah, you know, I was a bit hurt by that. And so it just, Jesus' followers make the first move, and so I just think there's something so incredibly beautiful and gracious about making the first move. Uh, that's what we're called to do, okay? Um, as, as one person said, when in doubt, just give them a shout, okay? Very, very practical here, but I think this is going to be helpful, okay? Don't use text. Don't use email. Don't use text. Don't use email. They've actually done studies on this. When you send a positive text or a positive email, it's read as neutral. When you send a neutral one, it's read as negative. When you send a negative one, it's read as attacking. Okay? Over and over and over again, I run into situations and people are, like, argument, things are blowing up. And I'm like, what happened? Like, and then they send me this text. I'm like, a text? First thing I say, you just got to call them. You got to sit down, talk to them face to face. The only emotion that gets read in a text or email is the one that the reader adds to it. Don't go that route. Followers of Jesus make the first move and move towards reconciliation, okay? If the relationship is cooled off in any way, the ball is in your court. 
another sub point to point number one, fill in point number one, I know. Sometimes the first move is asking for forgiveness. Sometimes the first move is asking for forgiveness. You know what's interesting? I've had a lot of people ask me a lot of questions in this series. You know, what about this situation? What about this? Phenomenal questions. All the questions I've heard, to my memory, have been with regards to how to forgive. I haven't had one person in both churches say, how do I ask for forgiveness if? Now, obviously the reason is because our churches are perfect and we've never wronged anyone, right? Not the reason. The reason is, and it's the reason that I haven't been asking this question either, is because we have a gravitational pull to look out for ourselves instead of others. And so we know when people have wronged us, we're not so aware when, uh, when we've wronged other people. So one of the most gracious, leading the first step, following Jesus things that you can do in the midst of conflict, even if they've told you, yes, I did screw up, at the end of every conversation, I just want you to use this line. Is there anything I've done wrong that I need to ask for forgiveness for? Is there anything that I have done wrong? Jesus' followers, they just lead with grace, and they want to know the truth, and they want to be above reproach, and so just end with that sentence, even if you're sure it's not possible. Because sometimes, even though we've been wronged, the way we respond is wrong and sinful and not honoring Jesus. So I just want you to ask that question. It's one that I've been trying to ask. It's just, hey, is there anything that I have done that I need to ask for forgiveness for? Jesus made the first move. We make the first move. That's point number one, okay? Let's go to point number two. Verse seven again. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a, what's that word? Servant. Everybody say servant. Servant. Louder. Servant. Servant. A whisper. Servant. (laughs) Okay, I don't want you to forget that word, okay? Very important. Servants exist to serve the needs of others. Servants exist to serve the needs of others. Here's point two. Jesus doesn't leverage his strengths to serve himself, but to serve others. Jesus doesn't leverage strengths to serve himself, but to serve others. What does that have to do with the midst of conflict? Your desire in the midst of conflict is to serve the person that you are in conflict with and leave them better than you came because that's what servants do. They serve the needs of others. To which you're like, wait, 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 wait. I was supposed to serve that? Just pause. That's the gravitational pull. I don't need to serve them. They don't deserve. They haven't called the balls in their crowd. Stop, 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 stop. Jesus served, and he called us to serve because followers of Jesus follow Jesus. Servants don't exist to serve their own needs. They serve the needs of others. Leave them better than you came because that's what servants do. Let me ask a question. When's the last time you had an argument with your spouse, with your kids, with your parents, with, with someone in your home group, and you just left that argument, you left that conversation, you're like, man, you know, after that shouting match, I just feel like we both look more like Jesus. You ever had that? Or like my wife after that, man, my husband, he's just, ah, he's just so much more gracious, just so much, he's radiating the beauty of Christ after that argument. No, but that's what we're called to. That's what Jesus did. He served the needs of others who had actually wronged him. It says, while we were still sinners, he came and died in our place. He served us. Is it a tall order? Is it overwhelming you? Absolutely, and we'll get to that in a bit, but you just need to understand this is the reality. Okay, now the question comes up, which is simply this. If I'm supposed to serve them and we're supposed to move towards peace and re- reconciliation, what if they hurt me and they don't even know what they did? Or what if they've been hurting me and they don't even know? Is the loving servant thing to do to just ignore it, to sweep it under the rug? Or, you know, is maybe what your family taught you is just shut up, don't mention it. What's done is done. If you ignore it, it'll go away. You know, is that the way you go about doing this to serve the other person, to make them more and more like Jesus? Do you mention it or not? The answer from scripture both. That's not helpful, Mark. Absolutely. So let me give you a few, a few verses that may help you with this, okay? So the first verse I want to read for you is 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers over a multitude of sins. I love that language. Love covers over a multitude of sins. 
If someone has wronged you and you're able to just believe and trust, Vijay's going to unpack this a bit more next week, but if you can just love them and say, okay, you know, I've done that before. I'm not you know, going to lose my mind over this one, lose sleep over it. We're good. I can still love them. And you can cover it over with love. That is fantastic, okay? Love covers over a multitude of sins, okay? So you don't need to mention it in that situation. But if the relationship has taken a hit, if you've lost trust, if there's now tension, there's conflict, the relationship has cooled off, you're having imaginary conversations with them at home when they're not even around, okay, then love has not covered it over and you need to go to this verse that Paul has in Galatians 6 verse 1. I love this. It's so helpful. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, okay, not they did it once and, you know, you didn't need to mention it, you covered over the sin and you moved on. They're caught in sin. They keep doing it over and over and over again. You who live by the Spirit, you who are followers of Jesus, who the the Spirit of God is inside, should, I love this word, restore that person gently. What it's saying is, is if they're caught in a sin and there's restoration that needs to happen because of the relationships that they're in have been damaged because of what they're doing, then it is your responsibility as a follower of Jesus to come alongside and restore them back into the relationship. And I love the key word he uses, gently. Okay, your goal is restoration. Some of you are like, oh, I'm really good at this. I, I, can, I just know when people are screwing up and I let them know, okay? And you just have like this trail of bodies in your wake of everyone who knows what they did wrong, right? And your motto is someone had to tell them, right? Like that's you. You just need to realize your goal is not being right. Your goal is reconciliation. Your goal is reconciliation and restoring the relationship. And that's why he gives us that beautiful word gently that you want to win them over, that you want what's best for them. And sometimes letting someone continue to do something that's hurtful to them is not loving. Point three. Verse eight. Being found in appearance as a man. This is speaking of Jesus, who is God, but he was found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus wasn't just willing to lower himself to humanity but he was willing to serve to the point of death. And I love that last part. It's like even death on a cross, which was seen as the most shameful, humiliating. It was literally seen as you were cursed by God if you were hanging on a tree. Jesus didn't care about his reputation. He wanted reconciliation to the point of death. Here's point number three. There was nothing Jesus was unwilling to do for reconciliation. There's nothing Jesus was unwilling to do for reconciliation. As followers of Jesus, there should be nothing that we are will, unwilling to do for reconciliation, okay? Now, I realize that you have a lot of questions with that. I'm gonna unpack that in a second. Let me just add a caveat, okay? When I say there's nothing that you aren't willing to do for reconciliation, remember VJ defined reconciliation as investing in the relationship. That some of you, it's not gonna be walking hand by hand in on the beach with the rainbow out, that that's investing in the relationship. For some of you, the most reconciling, loving, peaceful thing you could do is say, listen, after the abuse, after what's happened, I, I don't know if I'll ever trust you again. I love you, I'm not holding it against you. We are at peace, but you may never see me again. That may be reconciliation in that situation, and then you continue to pray through it and work through it and trust, as, as Vijay gave us those circles. It may not be there yet, and so that just may be it, okay? But Jesus went to the point of death. And the reality is, is while that is the caveat for some of you, for most of us, that's not our situation. That peace actually is possible and being in relationship, being in the same community and seeing each other regularly again is actually a possibility. Will it take work and will it take a lot of work? Absolutely. Will it take a lot of prayer? Absolutely. But Jesus went to the point of death and if Jesus' followers follow Jesus. Now before you say, well, how do I do that? And that's really hard and I'm not sure. Let me, let me just give you the picture of why this is important and then we'll get to a little bit to the how to in a second. Okay. The reason why this is important is because verse nine says this. After it describes what Jesus did and what, how he lived, it says this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, because of what Jesus did, many were drawn to him. Because of what Jesus did, many realized how great God was. He's a servant. He makes the first move. He's willing to die for us. He's a father. Because of what Jesus did, many people will know him. Yet the scriptures say, today, we are actually, this is the language they use when describing followers of Jesus, we are actually his ambassadors. We are the people that the way we live, and I know it's scary for some of you, but the way that we live actually points people to Jesus, and when we veer from that, you actually find in scripture that it says people won't see Jesus. That for some reason, God chose imperfect, broken people like you and me to be his ambassadors in a broken world pointing to him, which basically means reconciliation is a way that we can point to Jesus because reconciliation is worship. Now, I don't tell you that to scare you to say, listen, if you don't fix this relationship, if you don't get it right, people won't see Jesus, so fake it till you make it, all right? It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that somehow, when God's love transforms us and we begin to live this way, the light of Jesus shines through us, even in our brokenness, as we seek reconciliation, even though it's a long, long, long journey. So here's where I want to go. I simply want you to not focus so much on what we need to do, those three points, because as much as they're practical, they're practically impossible. I want you to focus not so much on what you need to do, but what Jesus did. Remember week three? We're gonna have it on the screen. I basically said this. Your inability to forgive, your inability to forgive is not a dead end, but a signpost reminding us that there is more of Jesus' love and forgiveness to experience. That every time, my prayer for you, every time that you get overwhelmed by how am I ever going to make the first move? And how in the world am I ever going to serve this person? How am I going to continue in this till the point of death? I want you to pause and I want you to realize, just like, and Jesus did this. That Jesus made the first move. And as hard as if you imagine that, and that's how loving he was, that he made the first move. That even when we didn't ask, he was willing to do that. And so in a moment, uh, Tony is going to lead us in communion. And in this time, it's going to be an awesome time to just remember and reflect. Not beat ourselves of, oh, what I need to do, what I need to do. But simply to remember what Jesus did. He made the first move. He became a servant to the point of death. What an amazing God we serve. I just uh, want to bless you before we have our time of announcements uh, with uh, it's something called a benediction, if you're new. It's just a, a speaking of blessing over that the, the pastor has the amazing privilege of doing on a weekly basis. And uh, a few weeks ago, friends of ours bought a new home, a much bigger home than they had been in before. And it, so it was kind of overwhelming as they just kind of like, it was, it was, everything was new to them. They had storage places. They had never had storage. Like, what do we put in here? It was just, it was blowing their mind. They have this three-year-old, and for him, he wasn't mind-blown at all. He was just running through the house, so excited, like this new place. It's like his playground. And it was just, for him, it was so exciting. For them, it was so overwhelming, but both of them had just stepped into a whole new world. My prayer, my blessing for you is that as you continue, I mean, this series, it can be overwhelming, and it can seem like, I gotta do this, and I don't know if I can do that, and I can do that. I just pray that you have a joy like a child as you run through this new family that we have been adopted into as followers of Jesus, excited to learn more about your adopted father, Jesus, God the Father, and the way that he loves us and calls us to love, that he makes the first move, that he serves us even when we're not even interested in him, and he does it to the point of death, that that may be your encouragement as you go.